Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a pop culture historian and comic book style illustrator discusses the 1966 debut of the live action Batman television series. You know, I describe it as a love-hate relationship. And hate's a strong word, but it's the opposite of love. Part of me loves things about the Batman TV show. I love that animation. I love the logo. As a graphic designer, the Batman logo is very unique. It's one of the great logos. I love the pop art aspects of the show, the sound effects. And I love the fact that I experienced it as a kid and that initial excitement is one of the highlights of my childhood. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Arlen Schumer is here to mark the 55th anniversary of the debut of Batman on ABC. Adam West, Burt Ward, Frank Gorshin, Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, Eartha Kitt. What a wonderful cast. And I have so many fond memories of that show. I was two years old exactly when it debuted on January 12th, 1966. Now, I caught the show in reruns years later, and I'd rush home from school every day to watch Batman on the ABC affiliate out of Buffalo, New York. But 
Arlen Schumer was eight years old and he was perched in front of the TV with his older brother that night. Arlen is an award-winning comic book style illustrator for the advertising and editorial markets and a member of the Society of Illustrators, an author, designer of coffee table art books, including Visions from the Twilight Zone and The Silver Age of Comic Book Art, which won the Independent Book Publishers Award for Best Popular Culture Book, and a recognized expert on American pop culture, especially the legendary TV series The Twilight Zone and the music of Bruce Springsteen. He presents his visual lectures on these and other subjects at universities and cultural institutions across the country and around the world and online through the New York Adventure Club. Arlen, welcome back. How are you, my friend? I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me back on. Take me back to the the halcyon days of the uh, early 60s. You're in summer camp and uh, you're devouring comic books. What was that like? What were you reading? This was before I even learned how to read, I think. But, you know, I'm in summer camp at a very early age, like five years old. And in those days, it was sleepaway camp for two whole months, July and August. But that's because my mother was a widow. My father died when I was four months old. So my older brother, by a year and a half, and I grew up without a father. So there was pressure on my mother. I found this out years later, of course. You know, the boys need father figures. Send them to summer camp. So there I am, five years old, for two months in sleepaway camp. And this was in, you know, New York State, where all the... A lot of sleepaway camps are for the East Coast people. And in those days, the bunks were strewn with comic books. Barbershops, I remember as a kid, had comic books all over. Most of them were DC and Marvel comics, a bunch of Archies and Bettys and Veronica, you know, all that stuff. But I remember holding this Superman comic in my hand. Like I said, I don't think five years old I knew how to read then. But I remember being drawn, pun intended, by these colorful things. And um, that's what turned me on to comics. It was Superman, and then I, I remember a Batman 80-page giant annual, and then the DC superhero comics, Justice League of America, Green Lantern, Adam, all that stuff. And then my older brother started getting into Marvel comics. So we were, and I became, my brother was attracted to the Marvel comics. I was more attracted to what I call the banal simplicity of DC comics. Um, they were more like like children's primers than the Marvel comics. I remember looking at them, they seemed busier, too many words. I liked that, like I said, the banal simplicity, but I was attracted to Superman and Batman. They were like the yin yang of, of superheroes. And um, that's why I was already a fan of the Batman comics that preceded the TV show. Right. So when right. the TV show debuts in January of 66, you know, I, I I remember looking at a Superman comic that I didn't know how to read yet, but I remember looking at the words. I must have just started to learn how to read because I remember one story where Superman loses his powers and he has to adopt a new identity. And he calls himself Omnipotence Man. Now, do you think I knew at six <laughs> years old the word omnipotence? But I remember looking at this long word and sounding it out as they taught us in school. Omnipotence. And I remember doing that. Wow. Was there a cultural divide between 
DC and Marvel comic uh, kids like or did did people yeah, sort of cry? it eventually it eventually became one as the mid 60s turned into the late 60s and they became even starker with the ascendancy of Jack Kirby's work and Jim Starak I mean Marvel in the late 60s just overtook DC because so many great artists at Marvel were doing great work and DC really all they ended up having was the great Neil Adams he was the only thing that DC had by the end of the 60s to combat the leaps and bounds of what Kirby and company were doing at Marvel in in the late 60s and Marvel was I lecture about this in my lectures on the Silver Age as the 60s became called the Silver Age of comics but yeah in the by the time of the late 60s the Kirby Marvel style with Stan Lee writing the dialogue and providing the editorial voice was superheroes with super problems they were super anti-heroes DC was the establishment the 60s were all about the counterculture versus the establishment. Well, DC Comics with Superman and Batman were the establishment. Marvel was the upstart, the underdog, who eventually, like every great David and Goliath story, ended up taking over DC. DC has never regained number one position over Marvel since the late 60s, early 70s. Who was drawing Batman when you first started reading Batman comics? Okay, so before the TV show, there were DC Comics gave the fans at the time really two different Batman. Starting in 1964, the DC hierarchy decided that Batman needed to be updated for the 1960s in the same way they had updated all their other superheroes starting in 1956 with The Flash, who be became known as the first Silver Age superhero. After The Flash, Green Lantern, Adam, Hawkman, these were all superheroes from the 1940s, retroactively called the Golden Age, who had been in mothballs since the late 40s, early 50s. So when DC started to bring them back in the late 50s, they we use a term now called rebooting, when you reboot something, they rebooted, it's the first example in pop culture of a rebooting, where, for instance, with The Flash, they kept the same superpowers, a guy that could run fast, but it wasn't the same exact character. It was a new guy with a different costume who called himself The Flash. That's an example of a pop culture reboot, and The Flash proved to be successful. Green Lantern was a guy that looked like he was wearing a magician's cloak. Well, the artist Gil Kane in 1959 updates Green Lantern. The, the Green Lantern you know of that they made a movie out of 10 years ago. Right. That's Gil Kane's Green Lantern. And that became successful. And then they did the same thing with the Atom. The Atom in the 1940s was just a little guy that was kind of like really strong. And they called him a mighty might. Well, Gil Kane, again, the artist, decides to take the Atom and make him more science fiction-y by making him actually microscopically shrink down to the size of an Atom. Because this is the post-atomic age sure, Atom. Sure, sure. And they did the same thing with Hawkman. And then they brought them all together in the Justice League of America. 
And that's an updating in the 1940s. They were called the Justice Society of America. So all of these things were successful. But meanwhile, Batman was still being done in the early 60s the way he was being done in the early 50s by the same editor, the same artist who were still drawing Batman like he was drawn in the late 40s, early 50s, very stiff, very cardboard looking, very flat and graphic, not rounded like a more realistic artist would draw him. But all the DC Silver Age reboots all had realistic artists drawing these characters. And there's Batman looking like a cardboard cutout from 1948. Well, either sales were down, and the stories of Batman were, they tried making him a carbon copy of Superman because Superman was more successful. So Batman started to have, just like Superman had Supergirl, Batman had Batwoman, and uh, Bat Superman had Crypto the dog. They gave Batman Ace. The Bat Hound. Uh, I mean, it was ridiculous. Right. I forgot about Ace. Yeah. So, so this, to me as a kid, I was aware of those stories because those were the stories DC Comics was reprinting in these 25 cent annuals. And, but starting in 1964, they brought in the same editor who had rebooted all those DC superheroes, Julius Schwartz. And they brought in their top artist named Carmine Infantino, who had done The Flash, right? Right. And they put their top artist and their top editor on the job of resuscitating Batman to make him more in line with the rest of the DC Silver Age reboots. So in a way, the 1964 rebooting of Batman that they called the new look is really no different than what they did to Flash, Green Lantern, Adam, and Hawkman in the years before Batman. Did his did his character get a reboot as well in terms of not the drawing, but the complexity of his the character? Characters basically, I mean, Julius Schwartz brought in his writers who were more science fiction oriented. And yeah, the scripts were better, but Batman, listen, this is why Marvel overtook them. The Marvel characters had character. Stan Lee gave them dialogue that made them sound more like real people. The DC Comics characters were stiff and cardboard even in their dialogue and narration. The art was good. You know, DC had a lot of great artists at the time, but looking back, the stories, that's what made Marvel stand out from the crowd at the time, was that, you know, no superheroes talk like that. Stan Lee gave them a snappier, wittier dialogue that made them sound like the way normal people talk, not the DC Comics thing was, you know, very uh, plot-driven, gimmicky stories. There was no characterization of Bruce Wayne or Robin or Clark Kent or anybody. They had character ticks, like Lois in every other story was trying to find out Superman's secret identity. Right, right. That's all we ever found out about Lois Lane for years. She didn't have any... The DC Comics characters had no character. Right, no backstory. Well, not, they all had backstories, but they didn't express characterization. Okay. Okay? The Marvel attitude towards characters 
came out of the dialogue. Remember, I don't think Stan Lee created any of the characters themselves or even the stories. I think the artists like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko did that. But Kirby wrote the dialogue. The artists drew the stories out like silent movies on paper. And they would scribble in margin notes for Stan Lee of what the characters were saying so that he would have a guide when he got the 20 pages of drawn art. And then he said it was like filling in a crossword puzzle. He would write the dialogue and the captions. And he gave the Marvel books an editorial voice. The DC books were very corporate. When you wrote a letter to DC Comics, you wrote, Dear Editor. Hmm. Well, when the Marvel Comics came along, Stan addressed the readers directly and said, Hey guys, I'm Stan and I'm, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it was much more congenial. Right. And whereas, you know, in D DC Comics was like, again, the establishment. You know, they had corporate offices in New York City and everything was done by the book. Marvel was more, they were the underdog. They were the scrappy little nothing compared to that. Right. So as we approach uh, 1966. Yeah. And it's announced. Well, first of all, how is it announced that Batman is coming to television? Well, let me just put a button on the new look. The Infantino Batman that lasted for two years before the TV show kind of obliterated everything in its Batmania path. That Infantino new look Batman was not the Batman that they adapted for the TV show. Remember I told you the annuals reprinted the 1950s terrible right. stories. Well, the producer of Batman, William Dozier, he didn't know anything about comics. He thought comics were a junk medium like the rest of mainstream culture did. Comics were junk, they were trash. And Dozier was a Hollywood elitist. He knew about fine art. And he went to the airport on his way to the meeting with, with um, ABC to talk about doing Batman, and he stopped in the airport and picked up a couple of Batman comics to familiarize himself with the character. Well, one of those comics ended up being the adaptation for the first episode with the Riddler. And the other comic that DC probably supplied him with was one of these annuals with the reprints of all the old villains, the Penguin, the Riddler, the Joker, not the Riddler, the Joker, Catwoman, who were all sort of minor villains in the comic books, right? Well, they were major. Catwoman, Joker, the Riddler was minor. That's what's so ironic. The Riddler, when he appears in 1965 during this new look, a year before the TV show, that's the comic in the spring of 65 that Dozier picked up in the airport. Julia Schwartz decided to bring back the Riddler who hadn't seen print since 1948. Brought him back in that one issue. Well, that's the issue that ended up getting adapted for the TV series with Frank Gorshin playing it in the immortal way right. he played it. Right. And the rest is history. But the point I want to make before I get into the TV show debuting is that I, I and a legion of Batman fans thought the Infantino Batman was great. He was sleek. He was cool looking. He had a style, Infantino. Compared to those horrible stories in the annuals that looked like a cardboard cutout Batman, there was no comparison. But ironically, those goofy stories from the 50s were really what ended up 
appearing on on TV in six. Not the Infantino Batman that we expected or hoped for, even. Right, right. So, as how is ABC then promoting that this is coming to television? Okay, so it's December of 1965. I'm seven and a half years old. My brother is nine. You got to remember, the movie Thunderball had just opened, the fourth James Bond film. Right. We were kids, but we loved James Bond. We loved Sean Connery. We had seen all the Bond films. And then we're, and we're, we're children of 1960s television. So all of a sudden, in December of 65, ABC television starts promoting something they call the second season. And what was the second season? Well, in those days, all TV shows on the three major networks, and ABC, they were the third string network. They were the equivalent of Fox. They were so far in third place behind CBS and NBC that they would try wacky different things because they were so deep in third place. Well, it turns out back in those days, all TV shows debuted in September of 66. TV Guide would put out the fall preview issue, their biggest issue that would have pictures of the new shows and little write-ups about them. And uh, so ABC shows for fall of 65 had all failed miserably in their first couple months of airing. And they couldn't keep them going for the rest of the year. That's how bad they were. So they decided to create something they called the second season in which they would have a slate of new shows debuting in January, which again, had never been done before. Nowadays, TV shows pop on all the time. Right. Right? But in those days, it was just September, and that was it. So they used Patty Duke, who was their top female star with the Patty Duke show on ABC. And basically, they ran these commercials that they show Patty Duke. Hi, everybody. I'm here to tell you about ABC's second season. We've got uh, Robert Goulet in the blue light, and we've got Frank Converse in Coronet Blue, or whatever the three other shows were. And, and you know, they sh she would narrate, and they would show a couple of clips, quick cutting of these new shows. But then she said at the end, and then we have Batman. Now, this is December of 65. Maybe there were a few comic book fanzines that were publishing advanced news, but I didn't know about them at the time. I was too young. But there were a couple of what, are, what were called the first comic book fanzines. But basically, there was no news about what was coming out in pop culture. Newspapers didn't talk about what things like they do now. There was no real advanced news. When we're watching television and seeing them talk about Batman in December of 65, that's the first time we were aware of it. Holy crap, Batman's going to be on TV. <laughs> but here's the genius of these little promos as I remember them. When she said, and we've got Batman, they only showed two clips from the first episode with Riddler. One was the classic shot of the Batmobile coming out of the Batcave but it went by so fast, as you know, right. you didn't really get to see Batman and Robin. And then they showed a clip from the, the, the second part of the two-part 
episode that we later saw of Batman and Robin jumping out of a giant stage elephant, like a prop. But the, it was so far in the background, you barely saw them. You got to remember, we're dying to know what Batman and Robin look like. Right, right. After having read about them in the comics for years. But ABC teased us by not really showing them. Well, all I can tell you is they ran these commercials. Batman debuts January 12th, the Wednesday night, 1966 at 7.30. All I can tell you is the buildup of that show, which was probably only a month. You gotta remember, the only superhero we had on television was the old George Reeves Superman show that we saw in reruns right, from the by 50s. the early 60s. That's yeah. how I grew up. A whole generation grew up with the Reeves show on reruns. Right, mostly in black and, and even, white. And I was I was buying the Superman comics at the time. Even Reeves, I thought, didn't look like the Kurt Swan Superman. And by the way, DC never would credit the artist. We didn't even know his name was Kurt Swan until years later. But I remember as a kid looking at George Reeves on TV going, where's the spit curl that Superman has? Right, right. Where's the slick back black hair in the comics? George Reeves had this slick back, you know, greased back hair, like whatever. I, so even as a kid, I developed because of comics, a visual acuity that I would apply to these other things. So the point is the buildup of Batman being on television was in that month was like the first three Star Wars films put together in <laughs> one month. That's that's the only way right. I can describe it to a modern audience. Right. And and was there a buzz it, like in public school? Everybody was talking about it in the schoolyard. Well, you got to remember, not everybody was a comic book fan. It was me and my. If I didn't have my brother, I don't think I knew anybody in my school. None of my friends read comics. Ah, okay. Comics. There were other fans we knew because we read the letter columns in the comics that would have letters sent in by fans across the country. And that's how fandom got started. It was fans writing to each other because of the letter columns and the birth of comic conventions and everything we take for granted today came about because in the age of snail mail, fans contacted each other by post. The DC Comics editor, Julia Schwartz, would publish the fans' their names and addresses and the fans reached out to each other. And that's the birth of comic book fandom and fanzines and why we have these giant comic conventions today. Okay, so cool. So Wednesday night, Jan 12th, 1966, you and your brother yes. in front of the TV. We are on the floor in front of the television on our knees with the television like an altar in front of us. So you got that picture? I'm seven and a half, my brother's nine. The first episode comes on. So far, so good. You know, the, the the crime is established. Commissioner Gordon gets the clue. It's the Riddler. They're in his office with all of his cops, the whole force, the mayor. Well, they can't tackle the Riddler by themselves. They're such wimps. We got to give you-know-who a call. The hotline, the red phone. We cut to Wayne Manor. We see... Burt Ward and Dick Grayson, you know, uh, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson for the first time. Okay, so far so good. They go to the bat poles and then we cut to the opening animation with the theme song. 
which of course the theme song is one of the great theme songs in history. The animation was cool. Turns out years later, the animation was done by Lee Mishkin, one of the great 20th century animators. He worked on Rough and Ready. He worked on the Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. He worked on Popeye in the 50s. Anyway, the animation was great. The theme song is great. After that's over, we cut to the Batcave, which was cool looking. Batman and Robin come down from the bat poles. They jump into the Batmobile. The Batmobile's cool. They zip out of the Batcave. They go so to far, so good. So, so far, so far, so good. So far, so good. Everything's yeah. fine. Okay, so we see them. In, okay, Robin. Burt Ward as Robin looked exactly like the Infantino Robin come to life. Exactly. Burt Ward was so such a perfect... But then I looked at Batman in Commissioner Gordon's office and the cowl doesn't look right to me. He's a little bit paunchy in the same way George Reeves was a little paunchy too. Right, right. And when you look at the Infantino Batman, trust me, you see, here's the thing. Well, let me get to this later. Okay. But still, okay, so far so good. They leave Commissioner Gordon's office and then they go to find the Riddler. They think he's up on the sixth floor in this jewelry exchange. So they do the very first climbing up the wall with the bat rope. Right. You know the famous scene. Sure, sure. They get to the sixth floor and there are bars, metal bars from the big picture window that they need to get through. So Batman takes out his bat laser torch Okay, just like something James Bond would do. Laser torches the bars off. Robin takes the bars. He's about to drop them six floors below to the ground of the deserted parking lot that they were in. (laughs) Right. Batman stops him from dropping the bars. He goes, Robin, you know, in that Adam West voice, Robin, you might hurt innocent civilians down below. So he takes out a bat suction cup with a hook from his utility belt, sticks it on the brick wall, takes the bars and hangs them on the hook. Safety first. (laughs) My brother and I in unison, remember, we're on the floor on our knees looking up at this altar of television. We turn to each other in unison and burst out with They're making fun of Batman. More of my conversation with comic book style illustrator Arlen Schumer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud. Fuel innovation with responsible AI and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Here's a resolution for 2021. Reduce stress and enhance your immune system. ESS60 from C60 Evo. C60 is the carbon 60 molecule known to deliver more than 172 times the power of vitamin C, 172 times. ESS60 is the purest form of C60, a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that works. ESS60 neutralizes free radicals from cell metabolization and external toxins to help minimize inflammation and maximize 
optimize detoxification. Further, people report better sleep, more energy, and renewed mental clarity when they take our ESS60 organic oil. To order your miracle molecule ESS60, click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes for this podcast, or go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. Buy now and save 10% by using the coupon code EVRS at checkout. Again, use the coupon code EVRS at checkout. In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, what, what a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Arlen Schumer is here, and we're marking the 55th anniversary of the debut of ABC's Batman. So, Arlen, you and your brother were somewhat horrified, I guess, when you realized that the producers were making fun of Batman. It was a send-up, and I think the term we use now is camp. We didn't know what the word camp was. Years later, I found out, oh, Susan Sontag wrote this essay in the Partisan Review or National Review, whatever it was called, 1964, called Notes on Camp, and discussing what camp meant. Now, camp, it turns out, comes from the homosexual community, which comes from the World War II USO shows in which men used to camp it up, meaning they would dress in drag and do these shows. And because it came out of war camp, right. the gay community dressed in drag would refer to it as, oh, you're being so camp. So that ironic self-awareness right. of what they were doing was artificial and phony, and yet there was a beauty to it. That's what camp is. It's a celebration of the artificial, and it's a self-awareness. Right, Adam right. West and Dozier and Lorenzo Semple, the screenwriter, they knew exactly what they were doing. This was not unintentionally where you laugh at something on the screen because they don't realize that they're being ridiculous. The Batman producers knew they were being camp. But as seven and a half year olds, I interpret as they're making fun of Batman. And here's what I mean. Remember I mentioned Connery and James Bond? Right, right. We had just seen Thunderball. If you know the first four Bond movies, while they might have some comedy relief in the form of Connery's little quips. A double innuendo, yeah, or a... a double entendre. Entendre, you know? yeah. And, but those are serious spy films. I mean, From Russia With Love is practically a Hitchcock film. <laughs> there was real suspense. Can you imagine Sean Connery going into a nightclub and doing the Bontusi? Right. That right. never would have happened, Richard. And and that's what we expected. We thought Batman was going to be just like Connery's Bond. Playing it straight, for the most part. For the most part. You can have a little quip, but again, Connery would never camp it up. So why did William Dozier do that? Because he thought comics were trash and junk, he was reading these Batman annuals, reprinting stories from the 50s that were ridiculous. 
And no wonder he's thinking, how do you do this straight? The stories are ridiculous. The characters are cardboard nothings. There's no character there. How do you do this? And he thought the only way you can do it was by not doing it straight. But he had it both ways. He said, we'll play it straight as if we're taking this stuff seriously, but the situations will be so ridiculous that we'll ride that line. So the adults will get the ridiculousness of it, the humor of it, but, you know, the kiddies, the fans of the comics, which they thought were just imbecilic eight-year-olds with this condescension, oh, they'll get off on all the action and adventure. You know, the Batmobile and, you know, climbing up the wall on the rope. So Dozier thought we can have it both ways. We can make fun of it and have that wink to the audience that we're self-aware We'll camp it up, but the kids, they won't know from camp. They just love Batman. Let's talk about the casting, which is interesting and because, is right. Adam West, who, he was kind of a bit, an act, a bit actor, played in the Rifleman bit parts. Why did they, why did they choose Adam yeah, West? I mean, he was on Naked City. He was a good looking guy and that's what got him into Hollywood. You know, not that he was a, a big, you know, six foot five. He wasn't built like Sean Connery. But he was a well-built leading man type in grade B roles. Well, in 1965, he um, plays in Nestle Quick commercials. They came up with a character in the wake of Connery's Bond. There were so many knockoffs in 64 and 65 of Bond because of the success of Goldfinger in 64 that Nestle's Quick decided to come up with a character called Captain Quick. And remember, James Bond was a naval commander, so maybe the idea of Captain Quick being a Navy guy. So they chose Adam West, and the, these are Nestle Quick commercials. They were, you know, trying to be funny, but they were knockoffs of little James Bond scenarios. So there's one that I show in my lecture that you can find on YouTube. They're, you know, shot in black and white, where, you know, Adam West appears as Captain Quick and foils the bad guy. And he's on a boat and he has a rubber ducky around his waist. And he says, you know, goodbye to the audience. Like, well, toodaloo. And he jumps into the water outside the ship. You don't see him. You just see the splash. But in other words, they were humorous commercials. But they were ridiculous. But Adam West played it just like he plays Batman. And somehow that made it to the offices of William Dozier when they were looking to cast him. And when they needed a guy that could play it straight, but have that little wink in his eye that you know and we know that he's not taking this stuff seriously, he's playing it straight as a way of poking fun at it. That's called being deadpan. Right, right, yes, earnest and, and deadpan. Adam, and Adam West had it down. You know, there's a great audition tape of the actor Lyle Wagner. Oh, yes playing Batman and another guy, a nobody named Peter Dinell or something doing Robin. When you see this audition tape, and it's on the DVD collection, it's on YouTube, I'm sure. Lyle Wagner plays Batman straight, but without that earnestness, that sly little wink that Adam West gave it. So Wagner plays Batman like 
the 1940s serials played Batman. And like George Reeves played Superman, like straight, without any kind of panache that Adam West gave it. And the same thing with the character who auditioned for Robin. He was so, such a nothing. And Burt Ward also played Robin with that perfect amount of enthusiasm, you know, the way right, he would do right. this, you know, that's right. Like, you can't imagine any other actors in these roles. You talk about casting. It was perfect casting for what they wanted. Right, right. So, so let's talk about the Riddler, Frank Gorshin. Um, because Gorshin, as you say, this was a two-parter. And he's... Yeah. This well, they character- all were. The first two seasons. Ah. Were, and that was revolutionary, that they would have two half hours in the same week. Cliffhangers. Jason Knights. Cliffhangers. As a cliffhanger that, that had never been done on television. And I don't think it's ever been done since. So, so Gorshin, his portrayal of Riddler... Where did that where did that come from? What was the inspiration? According to Gorshin himself, he took it from Richard Widmark's debut performance as a maniacal hitman named Tommy Udo in a 1947 film noir called Kiss of Death. And there's a classic scene that's pretty tough to watch where he's figuring out how he's going to kill this older woman in a wheelchair who the mob thinks is going to testify against them. The Widmar character ties the woman to the wheelchair and pushes her down the stairs. And he's got this maniacal laugh. And Gorshin says he basically patterned that Riddler maniacal laugh and attitude. When you see this Richard Widmar performance, yeah, it's right on, right on the money. But Gorshin brought so much of himself to it because you got to remember we knew about Frank Gorshin before the Riddler and the Batman TV show why you know the famous Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 64 right well remember it was a variety show the Beatles weren't the only act on the show there were a bunch of other acts well one of them was Frank Gorshin why because Frank Gorshin was a master impressionist who did impressions of other actors, particularly his Kirk Douglas and his Burt Lancaster, Mm. are so definitive that nobody's ever done them like Frank Gorshin. And on that Beatles show, Gorshin does one of his definitive performances where he imagines that we're at a convention of all the Hollywood actors, and it gets him to run through. It's like Frank Gorshin's greatest hits. So once again, how they chose him to play the Riddler, God bless him, that's where Dozier went right because his performance is not only maniacal with the lamp, but the physicality that Gorshin brought to the character, the way he moves, everything about, it was as much of his body spasms and twitches and everything about the performance. We had never seen a character like that in whether it's the James Bond films or anything. You know, Goldfinger was the great villain right. of the day. Right. But Gert Frobe was deadly and, you know, mysterious even. But the Riddler was like the flip side of Goldfinger. And we, you know, and even the Joker, even the other villains 
pattern themselves after Gorshin's portrayal. You know, Cesar Romero's Joker is practically Romero doing his take on Gorshin's Riddler. I always had a bone to pick, and I loved Cesar Romero as the Joker, but the fact that they, the producers couldn't convince him to shave his mustache off, and so they put the pancake makeup right over the mustache. And that, and that drove us nuts, too. What, <laughs> did they honestly think we weren't going to see that? <laughs> And I mean, the fact, I mean, here was Romero, not a washed up actor, but he was, a, you know, a matinee idol in the 40s. He was a Romeo type. You're telling me he had enough pull to demand that he doesn't shave his mustache for this role and he got away with it. But I'm telling you, that was another thing that bugged us about the show. Right. And by the way, once we saw that Later in the episode, after the rope incident, we get the discotheque scene where he does the Batusi. And it was all over. In other words, we knew Batman sucked from the first episode. And yet the first episode is really, the show never got better than that opening two-parter, I don't think. And in fact, Dozier, the, the, the ratings were so blockbuster that Dozier literally used that first two-parter as a template. And literally every single episode of Batman that follows operates from the same template. The crime, Commissioner Gordon summons Batman, Batman shows up, we then meet the villain, he's got three henchmen and the gun mall. You know, Batman by 1966, had a wealth of great comic book stories that he could have adapted, but he chose not to. Right, right. I remember Batman the. Had a, yeah. oh, I was just gonna say. I remember the uh, when they when we went to the uh, the villain's lair. We had that yeah. tilted camera. The Dutch angle, yeah. Yeah, the Dutch and that angle comes right out of the comics, and hmm. other directors have done that. But you know, I think Dozier had limited imagination story-wise. He, he only knew how to repeat a successful formula until you run it into the ground. You know, in the fall of 66, because of the clout he got from Batman's success, he gets to do the Green Hornet. And he does the Green Hornet, not campy, straight. And he had Bruce Lee, this new superstar as Cato. And he ran the Green Hornet into the ground in one year. It didn't last past his first season. And again, every episode is the same all Dozier knew was formula. He was not an imaginative producer. Uh, I want to talk about Burgess Meredith yeah. as the Penguin, of course, near and dear to your heart because of his brilliant performances on The Twilight Zone. Well, his Twilight Zone performances are near and dear to my heart. Not, you right. know, Batman, but right. yeah, I, res I respect him as, you know, a great Penguin, but I could care less about the villains. I could care less about Robin. You know, to me, it all comes down to Batman. If Batman is ridiculous, I don't really care about the rest of the characters, the movie. To me, what good is a great villain if the hero is terrible? What what made the Bond films work was that Sean Connery, we were there for Connery. Right. The villains were a bonus. But if you don't get the hero right, I don't care about the villains. I don't care about the Batmobile. You want to know something? My Batman does not tuck his cape under his ass and get into a car and drive to the crime. My Batman swings from a rope in the night sky. 
and somehow he shows up on the other end of town in two minutes. So I think Batman jumped the shark when Robin was introduced. Are you kidding me? A guy based on the shadow, dark, mysterious, even based on Dracula in a way, mm. a, a heroic version of Dracula. You're going to tell me he's going to have a brightly colored boy as a sidekick? Who imagine he tells to fasten his seatbelt? Well, that's the TV show. Yeah. <laughs> but imagine the shadow having a, a kid sidekick named Light Lad. It right. would be ridiculous. And yet, that's what Batman got with Robin. I don't know of any Batman fan, like, who cares about Robin? To me, it's all about Batman. So the TV series went on for three seasons, but did you even get past the first episode? I think I watched the debut episodes of the of all the villains. You know, the first bunch of villains. Joker, Penguin, Catwoman, Mr. Freeze. And to tell you the truth, I barely remember anything else until the third season when they debut Batgirl. I watched the first episode to see how they would screw that up. And that was horrible. So here I was, and I was still buying all the Batman comics, even though the comics ended up imitating the TV show. And it was the worst time. They, they told, I mean, they wasted Infantino drawing a lot of terrible stories, but at least it was still Infantino drawing Batman. But thank God this great Hall of Fame artist, Neil Adams, came along in 1968. And in one issue in the summer of 68, three months after the TV show left the air for good in April of 68, this guy, Neil Adams, gives us what we call the dark night today. Yes. Would not have been possible without what Neil Adams drew in a single issue in the summer of 1968. When you look at that issue, you will see everything you love about the Dark Knight, the fact that he's mysterious, the fact that he's got this giant cape, the fact that, you know, he's cool looking. That all comes from what Neil Adams did. Neil Adams single-handedly rescued Batman from the ashes, the creative ashes that the TV show left him in. Fair to call 1966 then the great disappointment? You mean for Batman? Yes, and for you. Well, you know, I, I describe it as a love-hate relationship. And hate's a strong word, but it's the opposite of love. You know, part of me loves things about the Batman TV show. I love that animation. I love the logo. As a graphic designer, the Batman logo is very unique. It's one of the great logos. I love the the pop art aspects of the show, um, the sound effects, and you know I love formal aspects of the show. But then there's all this, and I love the fact that I experienced it as a kid, and that initial excitement is one of the highlights of my childhood as a young comic book Batman fan. Are you kidding me? This is what I'm saying to everybody of my generation that was reading those new look Batmans in those two years before the TV show. You know, I think I speak for all of them when the debut of the Batman TV show, if you were at the right age, was one of the highlights of our young childhood pop culture lives. So that's the things I love about the show. But then there are things as a comic book fan, as an artist, um, as I've grown up to be, there are things I extremely 
dislike about the show that I feel were a betrayal of the integrity of the Batman character. So to my listeners who are enjoying this conversation, if you'd like to see Arlen this time with, with pictures, with graphics, with, right. with a video, uh, then you need to check out his amazing webinar series. He's got one coming up on Monday, Feb 22nd. Well, that's tonight, actually, you're list- if you're listening right. to this podcast on Monday morning. Feb 22nd at 8 p.m. through the New York Adventure Club. You're going to be talking about the history of pop, the, mo- the most modern art. Right. It's a lot about Lichtenstein. There are a lot of comics. But I, I've, I've lectured on Lichtenstein before. This will be a little broader because I'll include the other pop artists as well. Um, people just have to go to nyadventureclub.com and they'll find that. Okay, that's again, that's tonight, Monday, Feb 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern. Go to nyadventureclub.com. And then next Wednesday, Feb 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern, Great Comic Book Artists of the Silver Age number two on Kurt Swan. This one is via Instant Seats, right? This is not through the New York Adventure Club. This is your own. Right. This they go to... If they go to arlenschumer.com, my blog has all of these things. If you're on Facebook, I post all of these things on my Facebook page. But yeah, if you go to instantseats.com and do a search for Arlen Schumer, you'll find my events there. But, um, you know, I mentioned Kurt Swan earlier. He was the Superman artist for over 30 years, and he's the baby boomer Superman artist. And uh, he was my first favorite artist as a kid before we even knew his name. So uh, he's one of the great artists of the 1960s. And he's in my book, The Silver Age of Comic Art, which this webinar series, I'm doing it every month in 2021, 12 months, the last Wednesday of every month. And it's the 12 artists I feature most prominently in my book, which they could also get through my website, arlenschumer.com, called The Silver Age of Comic Art which is really the only book of its kind. It's like it's like a the first book about the art of comic book art. Most books before mine were text heavy with little reproductions. I do the exact opposite. My book is about the art and then even the text is supplementary in the sense that I take out the original word balloons and I put the artist talking about the artwork that you're looking at. So you read my book like a giant comic book but it's also an art book and a history book in that it reflects how the comic art of the Silver Age reflected what was happening in America at the time. The journey America went through in the 60s to the 70s is the journey that comics and superheroes went through. It's a perfect reflection. Arlen, you're a treasure. Oh, Ar- man. Schumer.com. A-R-L-E-N Schumer, S-C-H-U-M-E-R, ArlenSchumer.com. Thank you again. Richard, thank you for giving me this opportunity to wax poetic ad nauseum on the things that I love. And anytime you want me back, I'm yours, man. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop 
in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At My Strange Planet Shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more all emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist-illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop, or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Coming up next time, a psychotherapist and registered hypnotherapist reveals the relationship code. All memories are stored inside of us and they are stored. The emotions around that story is is at the subconscious level and basically we go back and we clear those emotions. And once you clear the emotions and you reverse those emotions, for, for example, from anger to happiness to positivity to love to whatever all of a sudden that old impact that was negative turns to we can turn it to positive i personally do work back i take them back into the genealogy i take them back to past lives i take them back to the womb until then same bad time same bad channel i'm richard Serrett. so long for now A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that you know Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.